Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Lines Led by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe and with me in studio, and by studio I mean a thousand miles away from me in London, I have my long-suffering producers, Tom and Nate. I, we don't have a nickname for us. We have the zoo crew. We don't have a nickname for us yet. Um, on my other show, Trash Future, we sometimes talk about the chaos configuration and the ultra chaos configuration. So I suppose we have to leave it to the fans to come up for a name for what configuration this is. The Legion of Chaos. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I have to say the zoo crew is probably more chaotic, if only because they set out with that goal in mind to to infuriate me by showing up drunk and high and me trying to corral them like cats. Uh, of course they do it in good spirit because right. the point is, is to break me. Uh, I were uh, together. I believe where we are mid-level chaos. Like if, if we were a superhero group, we would be uh, like HR chaos. Yeah. I would say it's an interesting configuration because Carrie shows up with the intention of doing sort of like, Boston guy fuck with you the whole time and Francis has just suffered a head injury so you never know where it's gonna go I mean Shox has also suffered many head injuries he like- has. but Shox has suffered head injuries because like he had a mohawk so fucking large he couldn't enter any doorway in Boston without getting a concussion somehow and so like like his hair would just fucking connect with his solid mohawk against the wall and like that would somehow like vibrate his brain like shaken baby syndrome whereas Francis <laughs> like Fra- Francis Francis is the only person who managed to join the army and already having like you know VA disability grade traumatic brain injury before he enlisted and it only got worse I mean this is why me and Shox work so well on 33rd County because we have connected on suffering multiple you know pleasurable head injuries in the pit from like a skinny dude doing a spin kick who weighs like 135 pounds and 70 of it is in his foot with his doc martin i felt so bad <laughs> i was in a pit in korea and everyone was having a really good time but i, I went up against this kid who very enthusiastically was also going up to just fucking slam people in the pit but he was like this 110 pound korean kid and he went flying like something out of fucking fist of the north star just like literally like impossible <laughs> geometry of his direction in flight and he was cool i checked on like I'm like are you okay and he's like cool he's like he's like good can shut up like if I can give me a thumbs up. When will like, uh, when will Western imperialism in Korea ever end? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're colonizing the pit, right? But w- exactly. But it was a Korean punk band, so it wasn't. At least it wasn't. A, it wasn't a colonizer punk band. And the Korean punk kids were having a great time. But like the clubs you would go to in Seoul were like the size of your average American living room. So in a way, like, absolutely, it was the punk experience. It was smaller than a VFW, but uh, some of them weren't prepared for how how hefty Americans are. <laughs> That's what I'm gonna say from now. I don't go to pits very often now because you know I'm almost 35 and my bones hurt. Mm-hmm. But now when I go to a pit, I'm not gonna say like, "Yeah, let's hit the pit." Like, let's go colonize that motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They actually just had a death metal festival in Yerevan, and I'm actually not there right now. And oh, I missed incredible. it. Incredible. It fucking ruled. I saw is, videos of it. But the thing is, is like this is on it. This is a bit of 33rd County hardcore lore is that now there is like death metal bands touring on hardcore bills. So you've like people like, um, 
uh, Gate Creeper, who are like solidly a like death metal band touring on like hardcore bills, and you see like death metal fans there to see them who are really confused because they're not doing like push pits or circle pits, and dudes are like swinging around kicking people in the face and they're just like what the fuck's going on my battle face doesn't have much kevlar protection yeah <laughs> i wasn't i was like I, I personally am a fan of having a good time in the pit but if the pit is basically being run by immortan joe then i i just feel as though <laughs> i may be in the wrong location when the pit crosses from fun to just felonious assault uh <laughs> like that's I'm, when I'm you out, get in man. that's when you get in Maybe when I was younger. Now it's like I've been hit. Like that's the that's the 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 through line of all of our shows is we have enough head injuries. We don't need to go cultivate yeah, more of them. Joe's decolonizing <laughs> punk rock by getting out of the pit for old age related reasons. Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, I I hear you. I see you. You are valid. My back hurts. Yeah, exactly. You are valid. My tummy hurts and it's my bedtime. He's handing out, you know, um, ibuprofen as people are coming out of the pit. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. it's, it's so funny like before we get into this episode like i uh since i've moved to armenia people really don't use like medicine uh like it's like a it's like a, a holdover from soviet days where you use uh, like home remedies for virtually everything and only when those don't work do you go to the pharmacy and get like ibuprofen or something like that i didn't that. realize that armenia was part of germany where yeah, they also yeah, I mean, like, you go to the doctor and they're like tears valerian root and some well, herbal tea. Well, you do you don't need like a uh, a prescription to get uh, ibuprofen there, but you do have to get everything from a specific like you can't go to like the local grocery store. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna get a bottle of you know paracetamol or whatever. Yeah, you have to go to a pharmacy to like this old lady that's still wearing a white jacket. No, she is not a doctor. She Why just do works at the pharmacy. For? Are you gay? But also, like, <laughs> my, my question is, is the Paracetamol also Ararat branded? Oh, probably, yeah. Like, <laughs> everything is Ararat brand everything. Uh, and, like, I, like, one of my friends is sick, and I tell her, I'm like, oh, I'll just run down to the pharmacy and get some. She's like, no, I don't need any drugs. I'm like, no, I'm just talking about, like, ibuprofen. And she's like, no, no, just make me tea. I'm like, cognac. All right. <laughs> In Britain, you can actually buy um, codeine pills kind of over the counter. I mean, you have to buy them from a pharmacist, but like you don't need a prescription for them. Oh, man. We need a splice and a guitar riff here because it reminds me of my fucking childhood. Yeah, I was going to say, but you Just can getting also- ripped on Coruscant and cough and cold. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Yeah, Dragon Ball Z would be a lot better <laughs> if everybody's ripped to their gills on codeine. Well, you can also buy, um, what's it called, uh, promethazine cough syrup over the counter here. So you actually can. Oh, you can make some fucking lean. You can go Houston style. <laughs> you can absolutely go sailing the south, but uh, the south of England, which sucks. And doesn't no, what you, need, what you need to do, since uh, Joe is now the Fent Lord, is. <laughs> you need oh, to- yeah. I don't even know what prompted that. People are so mad at me about some fentanyl joke that I made. No, I think it's a fentanyl joke that I made. But, uh, oh, cool. What are they so mad? I, are they are they are they like oh like oh fentanyl's no laughing matter or something like that? Like what are they mad at you about? No, I, I think I think that they were mad that we took it too seriously, as if like we truly believe that you know if you if fentanyl exists in the same room as a cop, them and three generations of their family will do the Yamcha <laughs> death pose. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, somebody somebody has a single grain of fentanyl in a baggie, and that cops causes cops to fall onto their backs and curl their legs up like a bug. <laughs> like when you pour salt on a slug they just shrivel up and fucking die yeah, exactly but like the new thing which i think is like very apt for the episode that we're going to talk about is now that uh dealers are splicing amphetamine so they're splicing like walter white meth with fentanyl 
Oh, okay. So basically, so you, you can, it's sort of like reverse I can ball. show you the world. <laughs> it's, it's like, um, you know, in the, I think, 2009 remake of Judge Dredd, the drug that they use in there, somehow everything's moving faster and slower at the same time. Since I've already made multiple Dragon Ball Z jokes, I can ever show everybody how much of a loser I am. It's like fucking Red Eye from Cowboy Bebop. Yep, yeah. <laughs> you eject it into your fucking eyes and you go rocketing through space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so basically what you're saying is that they found a way to make speedballs less cool. Like, now yeah. now speedballs, A, kill you more, and B, are made in labs. They don't even have any authentic drugs. Like, we've gotten so far away from the souls of the soul of doing real drugs that now it's like lab precursor chemicals made this and that it's like i get uh you know some kind of industrial solvent plus a lot of pseudofed and now i have a new injectable drug that can kill me it, it reminds me of that old chris rock bit from i think it was from bigger and blacker so like fucking 20 years ago or mm-hmm. something where he's like if you just lock someone in a basement they will find a way to get high they're like look man if you put some uh like lima beans in this aerosol can and huff it you'll get fucked up Sure. I mean, but, the Brits. But, <laughs> the Brits love uh, nitrous oxide carts. Oh, balloons, balloons. Yeah. They like everywhere you go in Britain. I noticed. You'll see I noticed like, the cartridges are everywhere, everywhere. and it's so funny. <laughs> like you'll see guys driving down the street and like hit a stoplight, open up the passenger door, and just dump out a bunch of carts. And just like, have you just been driving around doing fucking whippets all day long? No, but like, do you know what's really funny? So uh, around the corner from my house is a Domino's, and arguably is the best Domino's I've ever had and everything is half price but you see all of the delivery drivers because I live in a cul-de-sac at the end of my street sitting on a wall with their scooters in front of them just huffing balloons until they have an order so you're going to get your pizza delivered by a 17 year old on an electric scooter out of his mind on nitrous fuck yeah I mean that that should be the new flag of the city of London is this like a, is this a guy ripping a fat nitrous car? I, I, I made this joke one time that when you're turning in a busy road intersection on your bike and then you suddenly have, you realize there's no way to avoid in traffic, like rolling your bike over a huge pile of discarded nitrous carts, and you're like, this is what a medieval knight felt like riding over caltrops. And you're like, <laughs> once more into the breach. <laughs> Going back to our combat of the 30 episode, exactly. everybody is just now imagine everybody just like tripping and going whoa, 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 like, over like I, nitrous I, cartridges uh, this is we have, we have an episode that's, that's actually about serious history but i before we begin i have to ask you tom because i want your perspective on this now you're not british but you live in london and you know the brits being irish you have to know the brits very well it seems like the brits don't really smoke weed that much and the ones who do are like really into like being a weed guy as a subculture but like casual drug users don't really smoke weed as much they just do way harder shit that can kill you i mean is I, that fair or am i just, I, I would disagree and you live in peckham of all places the the weed capital of london i just don't i mean i'll be honest i just don't smell weed that much in, in peckham compared to like obviously it's legal in new york now so you smell it everywhere but like which rules but it's it's just i don't see it as much in the sense that it feels like a lot where i grew up and joe knows this too a lot of people tapped out at weed and the occasional other thing whereas here it feels like people use harder drugs way more commonly and stuff like balloons and then yeah like coke ketamine so MDMA, I, stuff I think like that. i think there is like there and not to get too um analytical about it but there is like a huge kind of socioeconomic divide in like the type of drugs um i think in terms of like nightlife stuff like coke is way more popular and stuff like ketamine is mainly kind of reserved for like if you're going to raves and everything. But like I live in kind of 
a much more working class area in northwest London. And like you see like guys like smoking joints walking around, but it's not it's not as common as I've seen in other cities. But like I find that the dudes who are smoking weed are driving around smoking joints, yes. not walking on the street. That's true. Oh, well, like my mom. <laughs> I mean, there was a time we were loading stuff into the car here at the studio, and there's a guy in like one of those Audi supercars. I don't know what the model is. An R8. R8, right. But he had custom painted matte black, and he had the sunroof Incredible. and the windows down, and he was smoking a joint, playing music loud as hell. And I was just sort of like, man, drug dealers are on a different level in this country, because yeah. they're, just like, they're just like, yeah, there's no fucking cops. No one's going to do shit. Like, but, as opposed to in America, you kind of have to like drive a Nissan Altima, mm-hmm. you know, up. Take that back. I drive a Nissan Altima. I can't say Nissan like the Brits do. Uh, yeah, drive a Nissan Altima. Keep it like a little bit low key because like the cops are just looking for an excuse to shoot everyone, like everyone in their peripheral vision. Uh, yeah, you have to tiptoe around cops in the U.S. like they're a feral dog. Yeah, whereas here it's just like the Tories hate the state so much they've actually cut the cops. So like the cops are too busy being in racist WhatsApp groups. Like when the worst person you know makes a good point. But I, I think like the the lack of prevalence of weed is because harder drugs are so like are so much more common like coke in terms of if you go out even to like a pub on a for a casual couple of drinks on any night of the week someone's hitting the bag in the bathroom yep yep, absolutely yeah yeah, that's the thing that's that that was that that when i was there i went to a pisser in some random pub in london there was some guy like doing coke off the urinal and i was like Hey man, you almost thought I have to piss. <laughs> like, there's only one urinal, my man. Can you scoot over? You can do the line off the top, and I'll just piss along the bottom. Exactly. I got good aim; we'll be fine. That's actually like a way to get a better high: is to have the aroma of an Armenian dude's piss hitting you while you're fucking yeah. doing a line. I thought I thought you were gonna say doing coke through your piss hole like that. <laughs> I mean, it's I'm already sure it's like grossly cut with ammonia and bleach anyway so it's gonna have the same effect exactly yeah now fellas now that we are almost 20 minutes into this episode (laughs) (laughs) we we are talking about something there's absolutely nothing about any country or drug that we actually drugs do come up so never mind um a long time ago uh it's probably over a year ago uh we talked about the goddess of all snipers ludmia pavlichenko uh, a subject a lot of people got really weird about for different reasons. Uh, Funnily enough, Joe, uh, I was actually in a bookshop uh, the other day and was looking at like, oh, you know, military history books, see if I can spot something that I could, you know, pick out and like send to you. So, oh, we could do an episode about this and saw that book about her. She wrote her, I mean, allegedly, she wrote her own autobiography, uh, but it was almost uh, certainly like... Uh, perused by state censors because it's fucking awful uh i used it for a source and we did uh the episode but i had to use other stuff as well because like she doesn't talk about herself virtually at all she always talks about the the champions of the people's army and shit i'm like jesus christ give it a fucking rest it's like talking to a 16 year old leninist um, yeah i mean like i think that's just this is a part of me that thinks that's probably day rigor she, for people. she probably didn't write it yeah that, that, um, that was also like a way that things were done i mean i think about um uh, Vasily Grossman's novel Life and Fate, which was like to s- some extent pretty critical of the Soviet state, but also in a lot of ways super like praising the army and the heroism of the army and sort of like in a more realistic way is what people experienced in Stalingrad. And like that book wasn't allowed to be published until the 1980s. And like if you go back and read it, you're like, this is a tremendous book and it's like genuinely one of the best Russian novels of the 20th century. How on earth did they not want this published? They didn't want it published. So like, I mean, it's the same reason why Come and See took forever to get uh, released as well, mm-hmm. which is like, like explicitly be... anti-fascist movie, and yet, yeah, yeah, of course. But like, oh, this doesn't make our our glorious partisans look great. That's a problem. It kind of implies war might be bad. 
Yeah. Weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, during that episode, uh, I said we'd eventually be talking about the Night Witches, which was an all-woman bomber regiment within the Red Ar- uh, Air Force during World War II. Slay. That was vaguely suicidal in their tactics, but all around badass. So here we are. Um, but in order to talk about the Night Witches, we do have to kind of talk about why they were formed in the first place and the beginning of the Eastern Front in World War II, which we've done a few times. So I'm not going to beat a dead horse on this one. Everybody knows what Bar- Operation Barbarossa is. It happened. The Soviet Union was dumber than shit and got caught sleeping. Things went badly for a really long time. Go listen to our episode or our series about the Battle of Kursk, where we go a little bit more depth about the beginning of Barbarossa. And eventually we will do a full series about Barbarossa sometime in the future before my brain completely melts. Uh, so hold on to that one, maybe. Now, obviously, things were very, very bad. Let's just take a look about how bad they were for the Soviet Air Force, which is a wing of this, the Soviet military that generally we don't talk about too often. Uh, for now, for starters, they were technically the largest air force in the world at the time with 9,000 frontline planes. However, these planes were not good, and you know a Zerg rush of planes does not make for a good air force. And the problem was, is these planes were complete dog shit, much like the Red Army and Navy at the eve of Barbarossa. Much of the air force's equipment was several generations too old; it hadn't been maintained, and had just been beaten into the dirt. They badly needed replacements, and they certainly had the facilities needed to crank out a decent air force at the time. Like one factory in Moscow was six times larger than all of Germany's aircraft factories combined. So like they did not lack capability. Uh, And like this factory was noted for being a huge problem uh, by the Nazi military because Nazi engineers were allowed to have a guided tour of it back because, you know, the two sides were friends and trading and being all around assholes when it comes to right before the eve of World War II. And uh, that's unfortunately something Soviet and Russian historians really like to conveniently ignore when it comes to the history of the Great Patriotic War. And, you know, Soviets aren't alone on that one. Like, I can tell you from experience that, like, Armenian history as well in the Soviet time kind of glosses over that fact a lot. Uh, Nobody really likes to talk about that. Um, Now, so if they had the means to replace their aging air force, why didn't they? Well, there's a few reasons for that, mostly having to do with them having a a terribly out-of-date doctrine, which only applied to a few aircraft manufacturers who were then ruthlessly purged. For starters, the Soviet Air Force on a doctrine came up by a guy named Giulio Dulet, who is a Italian genocide and air power aficionado. Which is that is that is a combo. I mean, if you yeah, had if you yeah. had a bit of pilot riding in the tanker, I mean, like that could have been you. <laughs> well, I will say he was not a genocide researcher as much as a guy who really enjoyed genocide. Uh, you know, he's Italian uh, and the. The early twenties. When you talk about so, so you can so imagine. He's, he's I eat of the pasta. I make it the genocide. So he's a, <laughs> a genocide enthusiast. Like he wants the Italians to depopulate East Africa, or he's like yeah. he's like in the Soviet Union, being like, guys, there are so many ethnic groups you can get this rid of. This dude really hates Ethiopians. I, I cook it to genocide. Yeah, um, exactly. All right, cool. It's my non recipe. I cook it to genocide. <laughs> He was a World War One veteran, uh, and it shows because um, he believed that the Air Force's entire job was to simply bomb things, civilians included, which would require an Air Force made up entirely of bombers. My man had no time for escort fighters at all. And he's actually who we have to thank for the concept of strategic bombing, i.e. the carpet bombing of cities that the Allies and Axis alike conducted throughout the war. So this is a guy that 
both people, both sides kind of liked, though other sides kind of understood that, you know, if you put bombers in the air, you need something to protect the bombers. The Soviets had no time for that bullshit. Uh, all gas, no brakes. Let's do 100% bomber air force. So following his doctrine of bombers go burr, the Soviet aircraft factories cranked out bombers with little thought to any other kind of plane. They were so dedicated to this theory that they cut production of fighter aircraft in half so they could pump out even more bombers. I mean, if, so, you, if you look at the entire continuity of Soviet history, there's one thing they love more than anything, and it's committing to the bit. Yeah, yeah, especially when the bit is dumb military doctrine right before World War II starts. I mean, if the, if it had survived for maybe another 20 years, I feel like the Soviets would have figured out how to make, you know, planes and tanks run on borscht. I mean, they did figure out how to incorporate a lot of booze into fighter aircraft. Like we talked about uh, during our Soviet Afghan war series, the, the, they called it the, the booze carrier because you could drink the coolant. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it was happening so often that it was making the planes not work right. <laughs> yeah, well, I was thinking about this too. That um, you, I presume, you're going to get also the point that there was also this uh, this big this big deficit of Soviet aircraft because oh yeah, a thing happened yeah. with not wanting to acknowledge that the reports of what was coming were real, which meant not relocating fighters that were going to be targets or planes that were going to be targets at frontline airfields. Or what would become frontline airfields in you know uh, the very far western borders of the Soviet Union, and mm-hmm. so uh, a thing happened. Yeah, it was bad. Uh, you know, the Soviets, you see, treated the Nazis the same way that you treat a T Rex, which is if we don't move, it won't see us. Um, and it turns out that is bad. Um, so even when the Soviets had good planes, the kind of Luftwaffe, which they did um they just didn't have nearly enough of them and they weren't positioned the right place like nate just pointed out for different reasons um and the bombers that they cranked out happened to kind of suck this is owed to the fact that during one of stalin's favorite activities that being purges uh he when he wasn't busy stroking out and pissing all over himself until he died a lot of soviets uh, the soviets best designers found themselves with a speed hole punched to the backs of their head by death squads run by local serious serial rapist Lavrenti beria or thrown into a gulag system now there was the gulag system uh for professional like engineers and stuff where they continued to develop and uh plan new designs but you could see how this whole being locked in a prison camp possibly disrupts a functioning aircraft development process mm-hmm. it's not it's not good for the old uh, synergies and whatnot i mean like this is the same country or same soviet union that the leading cause of house fires in 1985 was exploding televisions so you know <laughs> now the purges went beyond the men behind the Air Force. It also went for commanders, pilots, and everybody who may have once sneezed in a way they could be considered kind of revolutionary. By the time the war started, 91% of all Air Force commanders, even down to formation leaders, had been replaced within the last six months. Uh, and this also goes for the Army as well. We talked a lot about this during our um, uh, Russian Invasion of Finland series. Uh, but like the Air Force itself was hit quite heavily by the purges. And the process cost the Soviet Air Force at least 6,000 officers at the time the government rapidly expanded the Air Force from 1.5 million people to 5 million people in 1941. So what you're saying is 
the manufacturing capacity of the Soviet Union was run like a small cafe with a small business tyrant owner, you know, super high turnover of staff. And, you know, it's not like you can just like quit after a month. No, you are uh, forcibly quit with a bullet in the back of your head. And everyone just goes on like everyone's a happy employee. Or your job is to like, you know, you're like, hey, guess what? We've got a great opportunity for you. We've got a really, really dull axe and you're going to cut down trees in negative 60 fucking temperatures and like the Colima Peninsula. Like, yeah, you, we like, have this sick railroad for you to build. Yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, hope you hope you enjoy, uh, I don't know, hope you enjoy lice and wooden barracks in the worst place on earth. Do you enjoy uncontrolled cholera? Do we have a vacation spot for you? Exactly. Uh, and so, yeah, you have officers being purged. Now, purge could mean a lot of different things. Of course, being murdered, thrown into work camps, or just being fired. Um, so you have all of these officers being fired while at the same time, the Air Force is being expanded to the population of a mid-sized country. Uh, it's, it's estimated that the Air Force was short at least 60,000 officers that would be needed to command a force as large as the one that they had created. Can't imagine this going wrong. Yeah, nothing bad can happen from this. The expansion of flight schools is also seriously half-assed to the point that they didn't even have enough instructors or fuel for the training planes. So rather than realize, wow... Joe Stalin, we fucked up. They just cut training down to nothing. So going back to what I said before, even when the Soviets had good planes and the off chance ain't enough of them to go around and fuel for said planes, the pilots could barely fly them at a level that can be considered competent. This meant virtually nobody had enough flying hours, leadership, or organizational structure to know what the fuck was going on during the opening stages of this war. This lack of organizational capacity was so bad they didn't even bother to space their planes on runways or move them to the front line or protect them in any way, kind of like what Nate was talking about, leading to something of a shooting fish in the barrel type situation when the war started as the Luftwaffe was easily able to target huge groups of planes, as they said, on the runway, bunched together and unprotected. This also goes for their staff who were billeted nearby. So again, things are bad for everybody. Life sucked and it was terrible. This brings us to the main character of today's episode, the Amelia Earhart of the Soviet Union, as she's often called, though I would argue that this woman is significantly more badass uh, than Amelia Earhart, and her name was Marina Raskova. Marina was born in 1912 to a very well-off family. Her mom was was a teacher, and her dad was an opera singer and singing coach. Her aunt was a professional singer and minor celebrity, while her uncle was Boris Manolin, a guy largely considered to be the father of the Soviet ship industry. So she doesn't exactly come from, you know, austere background. But unlike most people we talk about as main characters on this show, her home life was normal. Uh, Marina wanted to follow in most of her family's footsteps to become an opera singer or something in music. Though she eventually failed out of school because she had an inner ear infection, which ruined her ability to hear herself while she sung. Uh, So then, like most normal people, she simply became an engineering and chemistry whiz because she's just one of those people that's good at everything that she's ever done. Why not? Yeah. Like, save some for the rest of us. Fuck. Uh, She graduated in 1929 and uh, ended up going and working in a dye factory as their lead chemist, where she met her eventual husband. It was around this time that she had a kid and uh, began working for the Aero Navigation Laboratory as a draftswoman. And then, because it's the 20s, she eventually became a navigator in planes by 1930, because this is the period of history where you could just grind set your way into doing something crazy from a position of, of a dye factory chemist to being a navigator, you know? Uh, 
kind of like back then you could just be a biologist because you could scuba dive or whatever and who's like, and really who said matter. meritocracy and upward mobility was a lie yeah exactly now however she was working for the soviet air force but and she became quickly the best navigator in the entire soviet union but she was not in the air force she was like something of a subcontractor uh, and she was eventually given a rank within the air force because she would teach at the local flight at school, but she was not allowed to command any men with this rank. She never outranked any men that were around her. She was not technically in the air force. It was something of like, I don't know when you give someone's like little brother on a basketball team, a Jersey to let him feel like he's part of the team or something. Cause the Soviet air force and the Soviet union in general, when it comes to the military was heavily segregated when it came to gender, which we talked about uh, during our Pavlichenko episode. Uh, now, plenty of women flew planes within the Soviet Union. This was she was not like the first pilot or the first navigator ever. Flying clubs were super common and very popular, and thousands of their members were women. These were civilian pilots that learned how to fly, you know, crop dusters, whatever, as a hobby. Uh, however, because the military is still strictly segregated, the they couldn't just be like, okay, well, we have an emergency. All of our pilots are fucking stupid or got blown up. Let's bring in all these women. They just didn't do that. But Marina was teaching in the na- teaching navigation at the Air Academy, and she was the first woman to ever do that. And remember, she's teaching men how to do a job she was not technically allowed to do, despite the fact, again, she is considered the best navigator in the entire Soviet Union. I hate to see a queen winning. That's right. We've got to keep a queen down. She was so good at her job at the Academy, she was eventually sent to one of those flying clubs to become a pilot and graduate in 1935. And this is where she earned her uh, Soviet Union celebrity status, setting several long-distance records. One of those records was set on a nonstop flight from Moscow to the Manchurian border in 1938, during which time Marina, who was one of a crew of three, all of whom were women, were forced to crash their plane in a blinding snowstorm into a swamp where they all had to parachute out. They all landed separately. And she had to march several days without any food or water through blinding snowstorms till she found the rest of the crew, and they all survived. These three record-setting women were turned into like not small celebrities throughout the Soviet Union, but particularly Russia. But Reskova's fame far outlasted the other two. She was kind of chosen among them. All three were awarded the Hero of the Soviet Union status, the first women to ever get the award, and the only ones uh, before World War II would start. Because of this, she also got to meet uh, Joseph Stalin herself, which is a connection that will become quite important in, say, 1941, uh, when bad things occurred on the border. Things happened. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's known as a, as, a, as a tiff between neighbors, you know? The recent unpleasantness. Yeah. <laughs> and when the and war why, why started, did Germany become Russia's neighbor, you might ask? Well, there was this thing that happened, uh, and there was this equal sharing agreement between this one country and its borders and its nation status that happened. Uh, I don't want to derail too much, but when Russia, when the Soviet Union was invaded in 1941, obviously, like this was, you know, many people in the state apparatus saw it coming. Stalin was in denial uh, because he was even warned by British intelligence, like because they had a couple days before Barbarossa even started. I think is a couple days, maybe a week. uh, A German defector ran over the border to surrender and tell them all of the plans and they just fucking disappeared. Nobody knows what happened to that guy. <laughs> but like, obviously his advice was not taken. Yes, but basically the point I was getting at was that uh, 
you know, in 1939, you know, in the aftermath of them having signed the Molotov von Ribbentrop Pact, uh, when Germany invaded Poland, so did the Soviet Union. The, Pol- po- the Soviet Union invaded from, obviously, from the, from the eastern side, the Germans from the western side, but they split Poland in half. And uh, if, you, if you really want to get down into some reasons why the Poles hate the Russians, um, they basically executed all of the Polish military's officers in a place called Katyn Kat- yeah. Forest. And yeah, um, yeah it's, uh, there was like 22,000 people buried in a mass grave there. So needless to say, the Poles hate the Russians for this reason. This, this gets forgotten because obviously the Germans then betrayed the Russians or betrayed the Soviets and invaded the Soviet Union, and the Soviet Union suffered uh, more deaths in World War II than any other country. Uh, yeah, uh, the lions won't eat my face. So the, I'll vote for the lions eating faces party as yeah, I invade exactly. Poland. The, I was going to say, the, the, the Soviet Union and the Russians in general spiritually British. Uh, there's an argument to be made about their similarities, but that would really, really take this on a spin. So we'll just stick to the Night Witches. But yes, basically... Um, the point I'm, I'm kind of driving at here is that, uh, they definitely tried to make, you know, come to an agreement with the Germans. And I think Stalin would have accepted that if Hitler oh, had, yeah, they absolutely would have like, yeah. like Hitler, absolutely like if Hitler, Hitler absolutely fucked it by being like, no, we have to, we have to, to purge the Slavic race also. Yeah. Um, like what about my Judeo Bolshevism, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's just like that meme is like, trust no one, not even yourself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we talked a little bit more about this uh, during our series uh, about the uh, the, halt, the Auschwitz hero, uh, about how Poland got ruthlessly fucked by virtually everybody. So there should be no secret why most people who live in Eastern Europe and the Caucasus generally dislike Russia and the Soviet Union in, in their history. Like they're generally considered colonizers uh, in, in our history in Armenia because they were. Uh, same with the Russian Empire and the Ottoman Empire. So I mean, yeah. like it'll be Putin doing diplomatic visits and doing like a reverse land acknowledgement, saying like, "I just want to acknowledge that this land is Russia." Before I start my speech, <laughs> <laughs> we take take a moment to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Russian people, uh, the Kievan Rus. Um, yeah, it's oof, it's an interesting one. I, I would just say too that. Um, yeah, reading a little bit recently about the battle for Moscow, like the defense of Moscow in 1941, you realize that it was not very long. It was from June to like November that the Germans, you know, uh, were basically uninterrupted in their push eastward. Um, but they got so close to Moscow that like they were within the the the, the western suburbs of Moscow. Like they were they were. You know, it, they got incredibly close the first time. Obviously, the second time they went to the Caucasus instead. But um, like the degree to which there was just disorder on uh, on the on the Soviet side, like it's hard to overstate it. So like some big changes happened because like they came so like Stalin refused to evacuate. But like had Stalin evacuated Moscow, like it wouldn't have seemed too out of the realm of kind of what you might call reason because the the, the Nazis were that close. Oh yeah, like, you know, things were so yeah. fucked by night by the end of 1941. You know what I say to, 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 to Hitler is at least Napoleon actually took the city. Um, <laughs> don't look into what happened afterwards. You can go listen to our series about it. It gets cold. Um, we hate to see short kings fighting. Hey, he was normal sized. No, I mean, I mean, Hitler and Stalin. Oh, yeah. Fuck those guys. Uh, <laughs> it, is, it is also very funny to, to read some of the stuff about like Stalin giving. I mean, like, you know, doing these kind of like the blitz style speeches defending Moscow. I mean, like, we're, gonna, we're not going to leave Moscow, but like. Uh, the response to a lot of his speeches, people being like, 
man, he's got a funny accent. Georgians <laughs> sure do speak Russian weird. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh. he, the, my favorite part is he had a speech coach because he wanted to be considered Russian and get rid of his Georgian accent and failed miserably. I mean, that's one of the reasons why he changed his last name from Zhukasvili. Uh, he didn't want to be seen as Georgian. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's just one of those things. Like, I mean, if anyone does internecine racism better, it's the Russians. The general Russian sphere. Yeah, exactly. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the Balkans, but bigger. <laughs> now, when the war started, there were thousands of women who knew how to fly or in the middle of training in the various different flying clubs around the Soviet Union. And because Marina was a celebrity and literal hero, tons of them wrote her letters begging her to use her connections and try to pull some strings to allow the, these women pilots to join in the war effort in the skies. And like we talked about in our uh, Pavlichenko episode, frontline service for women wasn't technically segregated or banned in the Soviet army. Instead, they kind of did a workaround where they tend to block women in various bureaucratic nightmare ways and either make it incredibly hard or nearly impossible for them to actually serve on the front lines while trying to influence them to uh, join service roles like medical treatment and, and, and nursing and stuff. However, the Air Force is different. It strictly banned women pilots from serving in uniform and especially as fighter or bomber pilots at the start of the war. Why? Because it's the 40s and people are fucking stupid. Um, Marina personally went to Stalin and begged for him to allow women flying units, pointing out that why was the Air Force segregated when the Army wasn't? Not to mention, beggars can't exactly be choosers at the moment, and we need fucking pilots due to you being stupid. Of course, she didn't say that or she would have vanished. As if to press home about how many pilots Stalin was keeping down, she showed him the thousands upon thousands of letters she had received in only a few weeks' time. By October 1941, Stalin relented, allowing Marina to establish three air combat regiments staffed solely by women. Now, this wouldn't exactly stay that way. The one in particular, and obviously the topic of today's episode, the 588th Night Bomber Regiment would be made up entirely of women, but not just pilots, mechanics, commanders, and everybody in between would be women as well. And the other units had men in it and, and at various different levels. The 588th, which would eventually get the nickname the Night Witches, was not that way, which is why we're focusing on them. Once again, now, all, slay. <laughs> everyone would have to apply. Uh, all the women would have to apply and personally be interviewed by Marina for approval, uh, which took some time. Thousands applied, but only three the three regiments only had room for 400 people each. And she made sure to weed out those she called Summer Patriots or people who are not really dedicated to the cause of the war and understanding the dire reality that they found themselves in. Consider these people like uh, all of the British World War II and World War I guys we've talked about. They're the type of people looking for an adventure in war rather than like service. And she wanted to weed them out. And after being accepted, they were all smashed into a camp outside of Stalingrad because that hadn't been a charnel house yet uh, for the same training that any Soviet pilot got. And by what by that, I mean bad training. Um, they got bad training. The training had been slashed down to the bone at this point due to the desperate and immediate need that they were facing. And that didn't mean they didn't fly in training. It just meant they didn't spend a lot of time on anything else. Uh, for instance, as, shoot as soon as the women showed up, they were stuffed into, tr into different trainer planes and sent off into the sky. And now, I know I said that a lot of them had previous flying experience, but a lot of them didn't. And due to the massive influx of people, it was less pilot academy and more on-the-job training. You better keep up 
or fail type situation. Most of these women were between the ages of 16 and 26 years old. And it was sink or swim. Again, when it came to flying a fucking airplane. (laughs) So there was a lot of crashes going on here. This is Um, like, you know, being deployed to Vietnam after playing 30 minutes of Arma 2. This is like that story we did a long time ago of the guy who volunteered in his... Well, he took his friend's place who was in the army because they looked vaguely alike to go to Vietnam and didn't have a single day of training and ended up being a sergeant. Uh, Like, it's like, all right, here's the sticks to this Yak-9 or whatever. Don't die. We need the plane. Um, Now, before the war, in the best case scenario, pilot training could take years because... Flying is hard. Flying fighter planes is hard. Flying bombers is also hard. And that was very common around the world in most air forces. But like most air forces, the war starts, and shit just gets slashed to ribbons. So that training got slashed down to around a year for the women of 588th, which meant 12 to 16 hours of flying every single day. Uh, and But they also had to train to recognize German planes from an instant across the room. Uh, which they did by like flashing flashcards against the wall. Uh, and failure in the academy came quite quick. Like, this wasn't a situation where like we need bodies push them through. Uh, it was like if you fell behind, they just had to get rid of you because they just did not have time to train up anybody who was like having a hard time. And somewhat s- insanely, the training for the mechanics was kind of the same. Rather than getting any classroom time to learn the ins and outs of these planes that they're going to use, they were simply turned out to the hangars and started working on planes as the pilots in training broke them. So, like when you when, when you're a trainee uh, pilot trainee, you'd go out to your 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 trainer plane and know that someone who is just as badly as trained as you are just fixed that motherfucker from the last time you used it. That is and, not a vote of confidence <laughs> I like. Yeah, yeah. Like, as 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 Nate would agree, like one of the the most important parts of military training is confidence in your equipment, which is one of the reasons why they gas you in gas chambers and shit. And and now the pilots are realizing, like, oh, some fucking chuckle dick from down the street has two weeks of training and just fixed my plane from the last time I I tail striked it because I don't know how to land. It's like the local guy who's like. A mechanic but also is technically not a mechanic fixing your car yeah it's like getting your car fixed in literally any place in armenia it's just a guy who insists he knows how to fix your car what i would what i would say too is i remember encountering this very very different sort of approach in uh, to problem solving when i had to work closely with the air force when i was in honduras and what i realized was that like there's a very like in the US army at least like there's this notion of get the job done no matter what if you have to make a fucking if you have to get a you know an LMTV like a like a two and a half ton truck up a hill by having like tying handholds out of parachute cord and every single one of the soldiers in your platoon has to carry it up the fucking hill get it up the fucking hill whereas in the air force like if you aren't certified and current on whatever maintenance you just don't touch it and that mentality comes through in terms of like you try to solve a problem they'd be like sorry not my pay grade can't do it and it's like You'd be like, but I'm literally like saying we need to get a drinking fountain fixed. And they're like, sorry, can't do it because that's 100% their mentality on shit. But it also kind of makes it, it sense. It kind of makes, it it makes, makes sense, sense because like, you don't, you want, don't some want someone asshole. fucking yeah. putting your plane back together with parachute cord. Like that will kill you. That will kill you. Everyone on the plane, people on the ground, et cetera. So like you absolutely get it. 
And I didn't understand that at first, but then I was like, no, this absolutely makes sense that like in order for the people to be able to perform their job safely and have confidence in their equipment, they have to also have confidence that only someone who knows what they're doing and can do has been proven to do the job and certified on it. Uh, and like even people who are trained to do the job, if they aren't regularly certified, like they'll fuck shit up. So like it has to be rigorous. I can clearly recall them uh, a crew recertifying to drop paratroopers flying a fucking a CH-47 and they, they'd forgotten what to do and like they turned the green light on while we were over the ocean and the jump master, <laughs> the jump master was like I guess we're going and then they're like stop 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 the safety's like oh, stop 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 and it's like and then they turned it back off again they're like yep sorry guys <laughs> flipped the wrong congratulations <laughs> you're all marines yeah. now yeah, exactly. it's like we were fucking it was, it's Alaska the ocean is like 33 degrees we would all have, we're invading Atlantis boys yeah, we would all have died <laughs> we would absolutely all have died if we'd gone over like it's just insane and okay, so I hear this level of professionalism Nate and what if I, uh, I I see that but I offer you Anush some woman from like downtown Tbilisi who's never seen a wrench before in her life 100%. she's gonna put your propeller back together for that's you. what I'm saying is that like like there's obviously like desperate times desperate measures etc but that in that confidence in your equipment that you're describing like they just absolutely wouldn't have had that and it's it's that no, like, when God, you think no. about the fact like you have to then go up in the sky where if anything goes wrong it crashes to the ground and you die you burn to death like you get obliterated that must have been absolutely insanely nerve-wracking also like you're like 17 I mean, like big metal yeah. big metal things falling out of the sky are they're not good for anyone involved on the ground in the plane the people working on the plane you know an explosion that burns a forest all around you you know the second soviet pilot trainee has hit the building joe did you ever have to sing the cadence uh i know actually yeah, i don't want to sing it on the show but the one about the there are no airborne rangers in the whatever you know, there are no airborne rangers in the Air Force. There are no airborne rangers in the Air Force because they fly up in the socks, because they fly up in the sky and sometimes crash and burn and die. Oh, there are no airborne <laughs> rangers in the Air Force. And it's like, big joke, but also true. It's just like, you're dead. It happens. And that's in, you know, the most obscenely well-funded Air Force in human history, which this was emphatically not. No, this, this is just a whole bunch of farmers being very confused that they're flying contraptions at this point. Which is, I mean, which is how most pilots were at the time. They just had time to work through that. This is why you shouldn't trust helicopters, even to this day. They go up, so many of them come down in flames. They took Kobe Bryant. They've taken so many other famous celebrities and just don't trust them because most That's of them... That's why I was laughing the other day. There was like a video of President Biden flying away in a V-22 Osprey and I'm like... Kamala Harris probably planned this. <laughs> uh, it's just that meme. He ain't driving that shit. <laughs> Joe's just pressing buttons, wondering is there an ice cream cone going to come out? You know, he, he's you know what's the uh, what's the dude that with the weird name that like threatened him with a rusty razor when he was a teenager? Corn pop. Corn pop. Corn pop. Corn pop. Corn pop. He's like, yeah. where's corn pop? He's where's the corn pop button? Corn pop on a nearby mountain with a stolen like anti-air system yeah exactly you know revenge will be mine joseph biden <laughs> exactly i didn't realize that wilmington delaware a had high ground and b had guys selling stinger missiles but corn pop found a way <laughs> yeah he got them from the gangster disciples that bought them from omar gaddafi they're, got, they're gonna in, instead of the uh, basketball player they should have traded corn pop for that russian arms dealer <laughs> oh, was Victor Bout or Victor Bout? Victor Boot. Victor yeah. Boot. Yeah, exactly. Corn Pop is just being held in some dank gulag out in Yukutsk. Yeah, exactly. They let Corn Pop go, but he has to be like, do you understand how many genders they have in America? They're so <laughs> depraved. 
Now, here's a fun detail uh, about all of this, just to make all of this look more ridiculous, because they're already flying planes that are slapped together with duct tape and hope. Um, the Soviets made no preparations for receiving women in the ranks of the Air Force. They did not even bother to stock up uniforms or boots that would fit them. Instead, they were given massively oversized surplus shit, uh, which was you know several times too large, which included boots. Now, it'd be easier to just let the women use the shoes that they came there with because they would fit them, but they forced them to wear these comically oversized Mickey Mouse-ass shoes that they had to pack with different uh, foot wraps and rags because, like, remember, the Soviet military and the Russian military up to this day does not issue socks. They issue foot wraps, which is exactly what they sound like, uh, and they would just pack tons of them into the front of the boots so they could actually wear them, and they, then they would drag around their shoes uh, like a kid wearing their parents' uh, like uh, uh, oversized uh, shoes around the house or whatever, but they're all pilots. I just um, know full well there is some like Depop reseller going crazy selling these oversized, you know, women's uniforms for like four hundred quid a piece. Yeah, I was just, I was thinking I was like props to uh, props to the Night Witches for uh, prefiguring the super duper fly era of Missy Elliott's fashion. <laughs> <laughs> the Night Witches were wearing the original Fubu. <laughs> exactly. Fuck yeah. Uh, now, a lot of women graduated from this school and joined one of the three regiments, or ended up in men's regiments that had gaps to fill as well, because eventually losses stacked up to the point that you know the previous segregation didn't matter so much. Uh, the the people who did the best in the school were assigned to the five eighty sixth fighter regiment, as you know, dog fighting is probably the hardest kind of flying you could do back then. Um, the second best students were sent to the 587th Bomber Regiment, who would fly conventional bombing missions. And then there was everybody else. The people considered the worst pilots to come out of the training academy also ended up being not even arguably the most famous. They were assigned to the 588th Night Bomber Regiment, who would become the Night Witches. So these are the worst pilots that come out of this program. Now, the 588th was under the command of Major Yokodia Barskaya, and they would be flying easily on its surface the worst plane in the entire Soviet Air Force and arguably the worst plane that any Air Force would use during the war in any real numbers. That is saying a lot. Yeah. Uh, and it kind of makes sense. You remember these are the, the, the bottom of the barrel to come out of the training program. They didn't want to waste important fighters or normal bomber aircraft on people who graduate by the skin of their teeth. And the plane they'd be flying was called the PO2, which was a relic of a far bygone era. It was plywood and canvas biplane, an airframe more likely to be seen dusting crops or training pilots when they first learned how to fly rather than flying combat missions. The Night Witches themselves jokingly called the PO2 a coffin with wings due to the rumor that, you know, you would die in it. And mostly uh, like because it was, you know, canvas and wood that if a tracer round uh, hit it, which for people who don't know, trace around are slightly incendiary so you can see where they're flying through the air, that the PO2 would simply burst into flames uh, because it was like 90% fabric. Though the best nickname that the pilots came up with, with for the new death trap was the Kerasoninka or kerosene lamp. Uh, because of how quickly it caught on yeah, fire. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say this is basically like hell. Yeah, we're going into going to war with a paper lantern that flies. You know, you can you can drop bombs <laughs> out of the side of. So it's like not too far off the mark there. Yeah, this thing is a fucking death trap. And adding to that, uh, it could only go ninety miles per hour. 
but had a cruising speed of 60, making it the only combat aircraft to go slower than my Toyota Prius during World War II. I was going to say, it is kind of like you want to play Metallica's, what is it, Seek and Destroy, while you're fucking yes. having a sorties being flown of like a Dodge Neon that's made of cloth <laughs> and wood, and it's just like, dun dun da da dun da da but like the bitchin' music has to play like a 10-minute song because it takes so long for the formation <laughs> to cross into the frame. I like at this stage they might have just as well like strapped bombs to kites and just let them fly over in the hopes that the the Germans would shoot them and it would just fall down. Well, the, well, the one like, IP your homemade dr- like your Walmart drone probably goes faster than this. Just say be careful about the kite bombs because the one IP address in our stats tracking that's being listed from fucking southern Afghanistan is like our <laughs> our our best friend, like the, the 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 guy who listens to podcasts for the Taliban, and he's just like, that's a great idea. We've definitely got some kites <laughs> and we've definitely got some bombs. Let's get on this shit. Kite runner gritty reboot. You're going to have MI5 called to the studio because you have to ship a fucking t-shirt to Kabul. <laughs> exactly. I remember one time there was a guy who slid into my DMs insisting that he was a member of the Pakistani Taliban and asked, asking me to email him a copy of my book. And I was like, <laughs> I feel like that's probably a crime. No, no, thank you. Yeah, buy it, buy it on Amazon, dude. At least give me the royalties. Unfortunately, you know, uh, podcast distribution websites don't list Rhodesia as a legitimate country, so you don't know how many of them are listening to your podcast. Joe has actually had, I don't know if you've heard that story about a guy who was a uh, Zimbabwean communist, obviously not a white Zimbabwean, um, who heard about the episode. He didn't know the story about the like American Nazis who would like post Vietnam went over to fight with the Rhodesian military. And so this guy, the fan, uh, sent Joe a photo of him pissing on this dude's grave in Zimbabwe. It's one of the it's proudest, of my mo- proudest I'll say moments. One of the proudest yeah. moments of the show. Yeah. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Now, in comparison, the Yak 1 fighter that the top students would be flying went over 300 miles per hour, as could the PE 2 bomber the second group would be using. You could see why this plane, originally designed in the 1920s and out of production by the time the war started, uh, would uh, would be, you know, not the top priority here. The Soviets simply hit the plane build button because they could slap them together with some wood glue and loose fabric, and it wouldn't put any strain on the manufacturing infrastructure that was already largely coming apart at the seams because the Lend-Lease Act hadn't fully switched into high gear for them. They're just using the Age of Empires 2 infinite money glitch. I would really like that if, like, the uh, Age of Empires, you know how sometimes you kind of forget to upgrade some unit, so you'll have all these fighter planes and, like, a Roman legion marching around afterwards? <laughs> I mean, I just appreciate that, like, they were using the 1940s equivalent of Randy Quaid's plane in Independence Day. That, like, that that figure, that, you know, character character is eternal, has to recur through time. And so in a way, it's like that to me gives a little more like a warm and fuzzy versus what you were describing in Civilization or Age of Empires. Like when in Civ, we're like, why is my tank being attacked by 14 spearmen? Why have, four, <laughs> why have 14 spearmen managed to kill my tank? I mean, if, yeah. if you just want to look at like a plane flying along with uh, Roman legionnaires, I think that's just all of Joe's literary oeuvre as a writer. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair I enough. feel attacked. Uh, now... <laughs> The PO2 was it had a terrible payload of two very small bombs on kind of how light and slow it went, and it didn't have any lift capacity, really. And because of the weight of those two bombs, the pilots would be forced to fly low and slow. Uh, they wouldn't even be able to get up to their peak of 90 miles an hour once they were fully equipped. This, of course, meant they were very easy to be spotted uh, as, you know, 
put it putting around at the speed of smell while flying a pack of gum with wings, as Ron White would say. Um, yeah, I can imagine that, you know, obviously night night missions, less of a common thing at the time. They did happen, but they were rarer because, like, just the systems were, it was much more dangerous to fly at night. Uh, so that's that's why this plane ends up becoming the night bomber plane, because, like, but even it's then the only way you can use this thing. Right, but yeah. in daytime, obviously, you're fucking dead. But even at night, it's just sort of like... Yep, there goes that slow ass lawnmower overhead. I wonder what that yeah. could be. It's just like, <laughs> oh, we'll get to that point. They come up with a they come up with a plane hack to fix that. I reckon there's definitely some like regional like urban legend from like Eastern Europe of like some weird bat that flies around and makes that sound because like some confused farmer just heard like the fabric flapping in the wind as it slowly moved across the well, sky right. I mean, like, especially considering the planes had only been around for like 35 years at this point like imagine if you're you know you're like on the front line in belarus or something like that and you're just like what is this demonry because it's just like <laughs> yeah have you ever have you ever seen anything that's not made out of potatoes and potato related products <laughs> and then they've got some shit flying varshava mothman <laughs> fuck <laughs> And this plane also had a completely open cockpit, uh, meaning that the crew of two were completely exposed to the elements, which is a real motherfucker when you realize they're flying on the eastern front. So depending on what month it was, just touching the outside of the surface of your own plane while flying and them like having like like that scene from the Christmas story where the kid's tongue is stuck to the pole, but you're also attempting to fly a goddamn bomber. So you're basically going to have to have like baseball mid-sized gloves when flying this thing. And because they were flying so low, the pilots did not carry parachutes uh, because they wouldn't they work wouldn't at such low altitude. Yeah, you just instead they were instructed if you were going to go down to aim their plane towards the ground and die on impact so they wouldn't be captured. Failing that, they were given a sidearm so they could shoot themselves. That sucks. we love the Soviet Air Force. Yeah, once again, it's like my 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 uh, my first car was a Dodge Neon, so I was like, oh sweet, a Dodge Neon that you're, you fly to, to do heroic combat with. But this is like the shittiest Dodge Neon story I've ever heard. And like, that's saying something. <laughs> this is just like, what if an Air Force is entirely made up of boxcar racers? <laughs> it's funny you mentioned boxcars because there's, a, I can't remember the, the, the nomenclature, but there's a plane that the US Army uses, the Alaska Air National Guard uses them, and they are made in Northern Ireland, and they 100% look, their call sign is boxcar, and they 100% look like a project plane built in someone's garage. Of course, the but country I've, that gave us the DeLorean makes this shit. This shit, but, I've, I've, but I've, I, think, I can't remember if it's like a C-12 Probably or a less C-12, coke involved. Or a C-20, I can't remember the fuck they're called, but I, I 100% have jumped out of them. I just don't remember what the planes are called. Now- all of these reasons that we've talked about so far is like we like I already kind of said is why this became the night bomber regiment. Their planes were total death traps during the day, and at least by night they could hide in the darkness. Its small size did have some benefits. For one, it was incredibly maneuverable because you know again it's going sixty miles an hour, and it's going so slow that this ended up becoming its main defense mechanism. It went so slow that if enemy fighters, say like the ME-109, the Nazi ME-109, attempted to slow down enough to shoot at it, it would stall out and fall out of the sky. Because even if the PO-2 went the full 90 per hour, uh, ninety miles per hour that it was capable of when it was unladen with bombs, the ME-109 could not go below 100 miles an hour or it would stall. So it was so goddamn slow, it was almost fighter aircraft proof. So it's the tortoise and the hare. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, if if they attempted to slow down and engage the PO2s, they would fall out of the sky like a V22. Like they 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 had no tr- they they had no real counter to this. And because it was wooden fabric, 
The PO2 was virtually invisible to radar, meaning the Soviets had accidentally invented a stealth aircraft by slapping bombs to a, a crop duster. Another benefit, again, its size and weight, meant they could take off from anywhere. They didn't need a long runway. They just needed some flat farmland to take off, and which was a benefit because its fuel tanks were so low that these things would have to take off virtually right behind Soviet front lines, which were constantly moving because, you know, it's the Eastern Front in the beginning. They would have to take off from directly behind Soviet lines, bomb them, and then turn around and land again. It says a lot that the Soviets in the 40s invented a VTOL that works way better than the U.S. armies. <laughs> and because of the rapidly moving front lines, the women of the 588th were constantly moving their planes and ground crew during the day and then flying at night, meaning they were almost always sleep deprived to the point they don't sleep for days at a time. So how do you manage to fly a biplane bomber without crashing into the ground when you don't sleep? Amphetamines. Yeah, you already know the answer to this one. It's drugs. It's drugs, everybody. We already did an episode on the widespread Nazi use of a drug called Pervidin, which was methamphetamine. Um, the Soviets didn't use methamphetamine. They used an upper called d 4 dtrinophenol Nailed it. Um, this wasn't meth or any meth derivative. However, when this pill was swallowed uh, and not used as a powdered explosive... It was used to kill hunger pangs. So it was a diet pill. So much like myself, Nate, and virtually every other member of the U.S. military, the Red Air Force is ripped to the gills on diet pills and being kept awake. So you're, Fuck yeah. So you're saying that Lord Mountbatten wasn't actually assassinated. He was just using SlimFast. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, you know, I mean... SlimFast, manufactured in Belfast. At the end of the day, like, the Soviet Union and soldiers in the U.S. military in the 2000s were powered by yellow jackets of one form or another ours you could buy at truck you know and ripped fuel baby yeah gas stations and fucking you know bodybuilding.com or whatever the 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 bullshit website was but uh in spirit we are the same now the soviets also thought that this pill would help them handle cold weather cold weather better because it's a thermogenic it's not really what thermogenics do or how they work it's not going to keep you warm. it's like if you get drunk while it's cold outside, you feel warmer, but you will still die of hypothermia. And it did have a small side effect, of course, because it is a diet pill that's also a fucking explosive of just giving tons of people heart attacks. Um, so, yeah, the Pervidin, probably safer uh, that the Nazis were using, I but mean, hey, it whatever. Gives a whole new meaning to explosive diarrhea. <laughs> it, it'll slim you down it'll keep you awake and you'll crash your plane right on target imagine imagine how efficient they would have been if they had jack 3d in war in world war ii oh fuck yeah like old they had sick pumps old recipe <laughs> jack 3d it would have just made space marines like dudes like absolutely off their face on dmma just like running over hills just screaming I'm just imagining soviet veterans of the, the red air force you know hearing the len bias story and be like they're just like us we're all the same <laughs> i know exactly what that feels like now this meant the women of the 588th gack to their gray matter on diet pills could fly all day and all night and the night witches flew multiple bombing sorties every night from 8 to 18 sometimes more they would drop their two bombs, circle back around, load up, and do it again and again and again. Sometimes these missions were so close to the front line, they only took about 20 minutes. This is a fucking bucket brigade. This isn't an yeah, air force. This but is with just bombs. A, yeah, it's a, it's a bucket brigade to drop 
handheld bombs. I mean, that rules, but also like, wow, once again, the Soviet Union just absolutely loved being like, we have a lot of people and a lot of shitty equipment. Like, I'm not really going to think about it too much. Yoroslav, get the diet pills. <laughs> they, like 30 years, 35 years later, these diet pills would help Paul Weller write a town called Malice. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. The Brits loved, loved speed. Like it used to Black be beauties, so, yeah. so, so ubiquitous here. Uh, yeah, like like early Depeche Mode, they were all on speed, which is just weird when you think about it. But like, that's what I just can't get enough exa- is about. Exactly, exactly. Fucking yeah, new life is the way you feel when you pop some of the good shit. 3 a.m. in the morning is like, just can't get enough. Just can't get enough. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. Yeah, exactly. Now, speaking of these bombs, you probably imagine they're quite small, right? They were. They were. They hardly caused damage to hard targets, but it turned out not to actually matter that much. This is because they were turned into a magnificently accidental terror weapon. Remember, they're flying at night. That meant German soldiers spent the whole night getting bombed by planes they could not see or hear uh, and, you know, maybe could have rolled out of the local high school shop class, meaning they didn't get to sleep either. The Germans at first had no idea what was attacking them. The planes were quiet, barely made any noise as far as combat aircraft were concerned. And this is because the pilots of the Night Witch uh, Regiment found out a way around that their that their little you know fart can of a of an engine making somewhat of noise now they we already talked how they flew short distances very very close to the ground but right before they went in for the attack they would rip the plane back climb as high as they possibly could which for these things is probably like 50 feet or something kill the engine and then glide onto their targets oh wow so they Hell could yeah. only hear the plane coming from really far away and then it silence and then they would only kick their engine back on once their bombs were released and then pull away now sometimes this didn't work and they just crashed directly into the target because these planes suck um and now another thing because everybody knows about like the stuka dive bomber having a built-in like scream nozzle yeah um these kind of had an accidental one the exhaust manifold on the engine was you know, rickety and badly made, and it rattled constantly and made popping noises, which ended up being the only thing the Germans could hear when it dove up on top of them. They gave the plane a ton of different nicknames, including the coffee mill, the sewing machine, and honestly, this is probably everybody's personal favorite, the duty NCO, (laughs) because it was annoying and came around at the same time every night. (laughs) So... (laughs) Oh, man. Though, of course, the most famous one is the Night Witch, because soldiers said that the, that tapping, that, that, that noise that the exhaust manifold made sounded like tapping broomsticks, and it made the people flying them witches because they were flying the broomstick. And they came up with this nickname after word got out that women were flying these planes. And rumors quickly took off about what kind of women could possibly be flying these rickety shit buckets of a plane. The Nazis said they were all hookers, drug addicts, or people from the insane asylum. Uh, Or the Soviets had harnessed some super medicine to develop pills that gave pilots perfect night vision because their bombs are so almost always on target on infantry targets. It's like the uh, legend about, uh, is it the US or British pilots? eating carrots that have like no that was british yeah, yeah carotene that was british. in them that like gave them perfect eyesight and that's why to this day people think carrots give you better eyesight yeah in reality it was just radar yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, these were 
communist super hookers flying re- re- per- like repurposed crop dusters while also maybe being from the insane asylum. I always love these rumors because they make things sound so much cooler. But enough about um, our Discord. Uh, <laughs> uh, now, Nijeta Popova was probably the most famous of the Night Wishes. She would eventually fly 800 missions, be shot down three times, and at one point crash land, leave her plane, and join a nearby infantry unit where she met her husband. She fucking rocks. Yeah, that rules. Jeez. Yeah. Chicks rock. Like that. I mean, you know, like. Th- this is what modernity has taken from us. You know, now you have to use Hinge or Tinder to meet someone. Back in the day, you could crash your plane, get out, join an infantry unit, meet the love of your life. You know, it was just simpler Mean times. Who? Mean exactly. who? Return. This is what we need to return to. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, she knew about these, like uh, the Popova knew about these Nazi rumors. Everybody did because they kind of laughed about them. And while she thought they were funny, uh, uh, she... Uh, was in no rush to try to convince the the Germans otherwise that it wasn't just, you know, gacked up super hookers flying crop dusters. Uh, she said, quote, this is all nonsense, of course. What we did have were clever, educated, and very talented girls. Once again, slay. Yeah. The Nazis did come up with an effective way to track the things, but the night witches are quick on their feet. The Nazis use huge amount of low-level searchlights because they could then point them up out of the, out of the night sky. Um and then they would light them up with regular gunfire because they were, you know, biplanes. So, Joe, this what became, you're saying is, is that there was Russians flashing lights, weird noises. So what you're basically saying was... Uh, I love when I give away control of the soundboard. I have no idea what's coming. Uh, this became so common that nearly every sortie of the night witches returned to base with a few bullet holes in them um, and, you know, some would crash. At one point, uh, someone remarked that pretty much every single one of the pilots had been shot down at some point. But, you know, thankfully for them, their targets are so close to the Soviet re- uh, front line. Most of the time they could scamper off back across and not get murdered or captured or something. Can't keep a good um, woman down. That's right. Though, so the witches developed their tactic to get around this, namely using people as bait. Uh, three planes would take off simultaneously, with two of the airplanes drawing searchlights away from the main body of, of bombers, and then the third uh, main body would stick to the darkness and drop the bombs. And they would rotate through, so not everybody was bait all the time, so that's at least good. Now, despite all of this, and this might shock you, the night witches were treated like shit. Um... Male pilots and traditional military officers fucking hated them. No matter what they did, even winning multiple heroes of the Soviet Union awards within the ranks, did anything to stop the constant discrimination that bordered on actively trying to get them killed. For example, the Night Witches weren't given similar equipment as as their male counterparts, like something as simple as fucking radios or defensive machine guns to protect themselves from German ground forces and interceptor planes, because command simply deemed them unworthy. They actively tried to get these fucking people killed through negligence and discrimination. Um, But like we talked about, the the Nazi fighters generally... um, couldn't get a beat on them, right? Uh, because they moved so slow. But one guy, one Nazi, eventually figured out a way to do it. An ace several times over. His name was Josef Kakiek. I don't know. 
uh, he figured out that if he flew giant slow loops around the bases of the night witches, he'd have just a split second opening uh, to shoot at them before he ripped by them. But then he would do another loop and shoot at them again. Um, and one night in 1943, he downed three night witches. I believe two of them died uh, and harassed their base for so long. They were unable to fly for the entire rest of the night. He was virtually the only German pilot who managed to have any effect on the Night Witches throughout the entire war. And that night was the only night of the Night Witches' existence where they were unable to fly bombing missions. The unit would eventually lose about 30 planes, uh, but nearly all of them were to ground fire uh, because you know the tracer rounds would cause them to explode into flames like, a, like something from an 80s action film. Unfortunately, the mother of the regiment, Marina Raskova, died in a plane crash. Not in combat, mind you, just a regular-ass accident. Like Dale Earnhardt going down what looked like a normal race, race car accident. Sometimes the kings are taken down easy, you know? Um, the 588th also officially became known as the 46th Taman Guards Night Bomber Regiment uh, for their actions during the Tamam Offensive near Krasnodar. And, uh, like, they're, one of their unofficial names was, like, the Raskova Guards and named after her. By the end of the war, the Night Witches were one of the most heavily decorated units within the Soviet Air Force, and they were the most decorated women's unit of not only the entire branch, but the entire Soviet military for women. The regiment flew over 23,000 missions, dropping over 3,000 tons of bombs, which is a lot when you realize they're carrying like a couple dozen pounds each time, and 26,000 incendiary shells. Several of the pilots had flown over 800 missions themselves, with many others breaking a thousand, meaning they're easily the hardest working pilots in the entire war. And if that wasn't enough, they also found time to deliver supplies to cut off Soviet soldiers and occasionally rescue people. For the loss of only 32 pilots in action, they were awarded 23 Hero of the Soviet Union awards. And for comparison, only 95 women won that award throughout the history of the Soviet Union. 23 of them came from this one unit in the span of a couple years. Can we just say, in their honor? <laughs> I was also going to say, too, one thing that's weird about this is that it feels as though, even though they have all these incredible disadvantages, material disadvantages, this actually sounds like a better survivability rate than a lot of Soviet Union units. I mean... Oh yeah, it's better survivability rate right, than American bomber pilots. I, I remember, I remember reading reading about. I was talking about this because I just recently read a book about the defense of Moscow, and um, you know, some of the figures where the the author is able to get the, the the numbers involved. You would hear stories about like you know companies of like civil guard or like like um kind of like civil defense units that were then activated and deployed as infantry troops. Like they were just more or less pulled in from civil defense missions and sent to the front, and like out of a company of a hundred or hundred and ten guys, maybe two survived the war. Like that's atrocious. And oh, yeah. this, you yeah. think, wow, this is just, it's once again, Soviet Union doesn't exactly have the world's greatest track record when it comes to like prioritizing survivability of its troops. And like, th this sounds like at the outset, like this is going to be just this be a fully, massacre, fully yeah. meat grinder. Like, 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 like y'all are just getting people killed nonstop. But actually it sounds like they didn't, they managed to adapt in a way that like worked to their favor, despite also being like, the people you send to get killed if you are a Soviet, you know, leader who doesn't like women pilots or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think they had a lot of things accidentally in their favor for their survivability. Namely, they're operating so close to friendly lines. They're flying quite low to the ground. Pi I mean, the interceptor fighters could not handle them because they were too slow. 
So they, they had a lot of things in their favor, but even then, it really does. This does seem like when those situations are like, and none of them survived. Right. Uh, this, but, but this also yeah. sounds like when you think about the mismatch, the technical mismatch, like to use a really, really out of date old millennial reference, this is like the fucking Moon Knights firing the quad laser, but it works. <laughs> like it actually works. Now, on June 24th, 1945, the Soviet Union held the longest military parade so far ever, taking place just over a month after the end of the war in Europe. It involved around 40,000 soldiers and nearly 2,000 vehicles, and there was going to be planes flying overhead, though the air portion of the parade was eventually canceled due to bad weather. And the Night Witches were never invited in the first place. You want to guess why? Sexism? I mean, that was certainly part of it. Uh, They had a better record than other units, and they didn't want to make the other units' feelings hurt. Their planes flew too slow for the rest of the Air Force to keep up with information. (laughs) Oh... Yeah, that's very funny. Yeah, once again, the humble Dodge <laughs> Neon, fucking doing all this work and not being recognized. And that is the story of the Night Witches. I know I promised that one like well over a year ago, uh, but I hope everybody enjoyed it. And fellas, we do a segment on this ep- uh, on the show, also on this episode, uh, called Questions from the Legion. If you'd like to ask us a question from the Legion, you could message me on uh, Discord or Patreon after uh, becoming a supporter of the show, and we will answer it on the air. And today's uh, question is one as old as time. What is the biggest animal you think you could beat in a fist fight? Oh, that's such a stupid question. Not 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 a stupid question to the person who asked it, but just more like it's a question that makes people say stupid answers. Yeah, this reminds me of the fucking flow chart that says like forty percent of Americans feel like they might be able to take a wolf in a fight or something it's, like it, that. It's, it's like it's like people think that, but then if you're actually a veterinarian, they're like definitely use use like long hooks and drugs to subdue a cat, for example, because you'll lose to a cat in a fight. Uh, I I would say um, I could definitely beat the shit out of most small lap dogs and potentially something the size of like a raccoon. But <laughs> just Nate doing grounded about against a chihuahua. Yeah, exactly. I'll take a fucker's tiny arms. I'm just protected. Fucking Jack Russell Terrier just going completely like parabolic route of flight, absolutely launched somewhere. Um, Everybody knows that Jack Russells have shitty ground defense. Exactly. You just 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 pick him up and just trebuchet that shit. Um, I would say uh, having last night there's there's a sick fox in our neighborhood who's constantly like making horrible noises and basically dying. And they're trying. Oh, that's just me. I moved to London recently. Exactly. They're trying to get uh like a charity because there's no like animal control here to like help this fox. But there's also a healthy fox that's out. So like periodically we can never figure out because they make foxes make this like horrible death scream. And yesterday I, I saw the fox out there and I went outside. I was like, is this the sick one? And I looked at it. No, it's the healthy one. Pretty fucking big fox. Foxes by their nature don't really fight people. I wouldn't want to fight a fox. I think a fox is too big. I think something the size of a fox, you probably lose. So I'm saying, give me, given, given an object, if I have to use my fists, raccoon or smaller, but even that's kind of, kind of weary because I bet you they're little bastards. Um, they move quick. They got, yeah. they, they got solid footwork. And they got pretty sharp claws, remember correctly. Oh yeah, um, but definitely like smaller than that. Any kind of lap dog, I think I could beat their ass. But I, I definitely wouldn't go any bigger than that. Um, and I feel like you're a fool if you think you can, because that's why humans invented tools and weapons. Because we aren't really good at at at, at, at tearing animals asunder with our hands. But I, I, as someone who grew up in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by a lot of foxes, there is, in terms of like behavior, there is a massive difference between urban foxes and uh, non-urban foxes. If you like get too close to a rural fox either they will run away or they will bite the shit out of your ankles and your legs <laughs> like they are vicious it's like um 
in there is like some evidence of interspecies fighting between foxes and badgers. And if you know about badgers, not like honey badgers, I'm talking about your regular Indo-European badger. They, badger European badgers are so much different than American badgers. Yeah. They look like completely different animals. And like they will bite the shit out of you. Typically, if you're like hunting badgers or you want to smoke them out, what you have to do is you have to like light a branch on fire and shove it in the warren because it will smoke them out. But yeah, foxes, no, fo- not fucking with foxes. Folks, don't smoke out your local badgers. Smoke down your local badgers. Exactly. Um, I think, like, I'm, I guess I'm a little bit bigger than the both of you. I'm going to say I could fight a mid-sized uh, house dog. Um, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be an easy fight. No, but, like, I'm not, I'm not saying like a Doberman or a German Shepherd or anything like that. I'm saying like, you know, like, uh, I don't know, a Whippet. I feel like I could kick a Whippet's ass. Whippet's or like a Greyhound. The- Greyhounds are pretty big though. But also I think like with dogs. They're very they- skinny. Yeah, but they're fast as shit. The thing I'd say is that like you might. Get I'm not to- going to fight in a foot race. Well, you might, you might. Yeah, but they get on you really quickly. I think you have to land <laughs> a really good kick to one of those assholes. And then like they'll, they'll realize that, you know, you're a force to be reckoned with and they might think better of it. But bitches don't see my left hook coming because they they have their eyes are too close together in the front of their slight snout. Exactly because they, <laughs> they, 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 they they've, they've they've been bred through thousands of generations to just chase rabbits down a track. So they aren't expecting an Armenian dude to give them like a right hook. Like anybody anybody could beat down a, a like a, a bulldog or something because genetics have already done that. So like I feel like a mid ranged house like you know uh, pampered house dog like a golden retriever doesn't stand a fucking chance. Right, but that's the thing, though, is you think everyone can beat down a bulldog, but like, like thousands of small children every year prove this is not the case. So <laughs> it's because children suck. I could beat down but children like, all day. Bulldogs, bulldogs beat the shit. I think bulldogs like think about this, is that like if they've got they've got strong jaws. I feel as though like the reason I'm not fucking with most big dogs or even mid sized dogs is that like they do have the advantage with strong jaws and sharp teeth and like that. Like if they get the bite in on you, like you might be screwed. Like you but like, might. But a bulldog, you just backpedal like five steps and it's gonna keel over from asthma. But like. <laughs> As the only person on this recording who has been bitten in the face by a dog, not once but three times, I am. Uh, I'm gonna. So te- you've been training for this question. Yeah, I, I'm gonna tell you that if you get like, if you have a larger dog, they're like the the force at which they're able to close their jaw. It's not the dog biting you; it's getting the dog to open its mouth once it's latched onto you. If it's a smaller dog, they they don't have the strength, so you can literally just like punch it in the head and it will open its mouth. Whereas, like, see, this is why I'm saying I couldn't fight like a, a German Shepherd or like a Malinois or something like. But a Golden Retriever and an Octagon doesn't stand a fucking chance. That soft little motherfucker is going down. All right. I mean, like Period. fighting a Golden Retriever is like trying to fight Joe Biden. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like this old Golden Retriever doesn't know where it's it, where it is. You know. Exactly. My sneak attack is I jingle my car keys at it and then start slapping the hell out of it. Uh, that's how I fight children. Tom, what is uh, a <laughs> Top, what is your animal of choice? So I have been reading a lot about primates the past while, you know. Oh, primates going to beat you every time. That motherfucker is going to be the human champion of MMA. So I've I've been reading a lot about like different types of apes and monkeys. So like the majority of apes are going to destroy you like this. It feels very Joe Rogan to like talk about chimpanzees, but like chimpanzees hands down going to beat the shit out of you gorillas nate pull up a picture of a yoke chimpanzee (laughs) but but funny enough um it's like uh when zoos don't know how to design glass that is strong enough to hold gorillas because you cannot accurately measure how strong a gorilla is 
So all the glass in zoos that holding gorillas is just like, fuck around, find out. We don't know. It might work. It might not. But I think I could take between three and five spider monkeys. They're small. They're spindly. You punch them in the solar plexus. They're going to go flying across the room. No, like a macaque as well. Yeah. They're quite small. I, I don't know. I just, uh, I don't, first of all, I don't know if I'd want to fight a monkey because I feel like it's just like you're kind of fighting your like dim-witted distant cousin. But also, I just feel like they're going to go, I mean, we ha- we talk about ape strength and ape mode. Like, I feel like even the, the weird, you know, like sun bear looking proboscis monkey or whatever, like some deep down, they've got that Cro-Magnon spirit in them and they're just going to beat the shit out of you. I know Cro-Magnons and monkeys or, or, aren't necessarily related. Or they're going to like but, tear off a chunk of your face or your dick or whatever because yeah, that's the first thing they go for. Exactly. Like, it's, I, know, I feel like, I feel like, I feel like you are, um, you are disrespecting the spirit of our monkey ancestors if you want to fight a monkey. Like, it's just, it's just wrong. This is why I, I picked the safest bet, I believe, here by saying a golden retriever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a duck. You're going down, you soft asshole. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining me today. This is the, uh, uh, the area where you can plug the shows if people listening are not uh, familiar with them. So I am the co-host of What a Hell of a Way to Die, which is a podcast about why you shouldn't join the military. I host with Francis Horton from Zoo Crew and other shows you're probably familiar with. I'm also the producer of the Trash Future podcast, a a tech pessimist podcast about the tech industry. Um, And I produce this show and I also produce Kill James Bond, a movie podcast uh, hosted by the three funniest trans people you will ever meet, starting with the Bond series, but then now working through the Man Man from Uncle series and uh, the Jason Bourne movies and all this kind of just bad Euro spy movies in general. So if that sounds interesting, please check those out. Um, I co-host and produce a history show called Beneath the Skin. It's about the history of everything told through the history of tattooing. I also co-host a show called 33rd County with Shocks from the Zoo Crew about the connection between Irish experience and the Irish American experience. And I host the show you've been listening to and nothing else because I cannot possibly imagine doing another podcast. Uh, if you like what we do here, consider supporting the show uh, via Patreon. You get uh, bonus episodes, early episodes, Discord access, which a nice little community has formed over the years. Uh, you get all sorts of stuff and you help keep the show running. And uh, you know, if you don't, that's fine. Uh, consider leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you listen to because that is free and it helps us in we- weird ways I don't fully understand, but it does. Um, and guys, again, thank you so much for joining us, uh, joining me on this incredibly strange journey through the Night Witches and various other things that we talked about. And uh, until next time, do diet pills and bomb Nazis.